Obadiah. Chapter 1, because there's only one chapter. It's the shortest book in the Hebrew Scriptures. 21 verses, and we're going to cover them all this morning. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We've heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined! Would they not steal only until they had enough? If great gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border. And the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom? And understanding from the mountain of Esau. And then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman, that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. You will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, On the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. And do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. Do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives and do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. For as the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations, as you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head, because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually, they will drink and swallow, and become as if they had never existed. But on Mount Zion there will be those who escape, and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. And then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau will be a stubble. And they will set them on fire and consume them so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau and those of the Shephelah, the Philistine plain, also possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria and Benjamin will possess, possess Gilead. And the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephat and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Amen. Father, we pray that you would give us 
as always, Lord, insight and understanding and revelation. But Lord, there is clearly more revelation here than meets the eye, and so I pray that you will bring all of this to light and increase our faith in you. And increase, Father, our awe at your faithfulness and your goodness to us. And may we walk, Lord, more closely with Jesus, walking in your Spirit. Even, Father, because of the word that you bring to our hearts this morning, we listen. We are here to receive, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an old phrase you're probably very familiar with from the old English common law that is still in use today. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. That's the global problem. Because everybody wants to possess. It's all about possession. Hamas and the Gaza Strip would possess the entire land of Israel. They're not interested in a two-state solution. Be very clear about that. They are interested in one thing and one thing only, and that is the absolute demise of the Jewish people. The wiping out of the people of Israel. And we're seeing right now, and I'm going to talk about this in a few moments a little more, but we're seeing a burst of anti-Semitic rhetoric in the world unparalleled, except perhaps prior to the Holocaust. Where people in the streets of Paris are chanting death to the Jew. Everyone would possess something. James writes in James chapter 4 verse 1, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And from Venezuela to the South China Sea, from the borders of America to Russia and the Ukraine to the Middle East... There are few people, honestly, in the world today who could make a good case for the, uh, you know, the, uh, the tranquility of the global community. Perhaps you heard that spoken by Josh Ernest, and I know he spoke in earnest. The White House uh, press secretary made that comment a couple weeks back. I could not believe my ears. The tranquility of the global community at a time where if you just look around, the world is less tranquil than it has been at least since the late 70s. This world is writhing in conflict. This world is writhing in conflict and in desire to possess and in battle. And some might wonder with all that's going on, Why do you Christians major in the minors? Why would you gather on a Sunday morning and open some ancient dusty manuscript by some guy named Obladi Obadiah? (laughs) Why would you go there? Why waste your time? As a matter of fact, you know, by the time we're through the minor prophets, we will have spent 10 months, the bulk of 2014, Studying the minor prophets, guys who prophesied from 800 years before Christ on up to about 400 years before Christ. That's a long time ago. To a people who, you know, I'm not a Jew, what's it got to do with me? And besides, isn't that all fulfilled and isn't that all old school? And why would you waste your time sticking your heads in the dust of the Bible? (laughs) Nothing is more relevant than the Word of God. And nothing is more relevant than what we're going to talk about today. Absolutely stunning. You know, I mean, I, we had on the map, I knew ultimately around this time this summer we'd be hitting Obadiah. I had no idea. 
that everything would explode between Israel and Hamas? You'll see the relevance of that in a moment. But why would we continue to come back to the Word of God? It's because these pages give divine direction in the very conflicts embroiling the globe today and divine direction in how we deal with conflicts ourselves. You see, each one of us have conflicts in our lives. And so from the national and the international scene to the very personal, God says, I want to speak into your conflict. I want to bring peace where there is distress. And if you will hear my word, you will find peace in my spirit. And I'm certain of these things. Even little Obadiah, again, the shortest of the minor prophets, the most minorist of the minors, the only book smaller would be 2 John, 3 John in the, in the New Testament. Obadiah coming in at 21 verses offers the wisdom of God and it is radically relevant for our times. Quick background for you. For you students of history, you want to know these things. I believe that Obadiah was probably written about 840 B.C. Now there's debate and uh, different opinions about that. Some would say, no, no, it had to be written around the time of the fall of Babylon, around five, maybe 585, right after the fall of Babylon, because it talks about the distress of the people of Jacob. I'll explain to you later why I don't think that fits. 840 B.C. seems to be the best time, the oldest then, of the minor prophets. That this one came first. Obadiah wrote his before any of the others. Primarily, I believe this, because Joel and Amos and later on Jeremiah quote extensively from this little prophecy. They bring it up in their own prophecies. And so those guys coming later would have something to draw off of that came earlier, obviously focused by the Holy Spirit of the living God. As to the prophet himself, we have no personal biography. All we get is the vision of Obadiah. So who's this guy? No definitive biblical reference to the man. Now, the old rabbis place him in Elijah's day, which would fit around 840 B.C. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 3 says, Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. Why would he do that? Well, perhaps he was a prophet as well. And so some think 1 Kings 18 speaks about Obadiah, the minor prophet. Problem is, while that fits an earlier date, so does another Obadiah. While Ahab was king up in Israel, and this Obadiah was the governor, if you will, of his house, down in southern Judah, Jehoshaphat was king. And we're told that Jehoshaphat dispatched a teaching team to revive Bible study in and among the cities of Judah right around this time. 2 Chronicles chapter 17, verse 7, names the teaching team. In the third year of his reign, Jehoshaphat sent his officials Ben-Hael, Obadiah, Zechariah, Netanel, and Micaiah to teach in the cities of Judah. So there's two possibilities of who Obadiah might have been. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew Scriptures point out 13 different Obadiahs. 13 guys who have this same name. And so we really don't know which one it may have been, if any of the guys listed or named in Scripture. We don't get the personal bio. We just get his name. And it's a good name. Obadiah means servant worshiper of Yahweh. Servant worshiper of Yahweh. That's a sermon in and of itself. 
Trust me, I could have stretched out this book over four or five weeks. That's a sermon because isn't that, brothers and sisters in Christ, isn't that the desire of our hearts? To be servant worshipers of Yahweh. Isn't that why we're here? And what this life ultimately is about, that we would be worshipers of God, that we would fall before His glory, that we would be servants of His, and when we function as Obadiahs, as servant worshipers of Yahweh, when we are worshipers of the King, life is right. Doesn't mean pain doesn't happen. Doesn't mean you don't get waylaid by surprising events like your wife going into ICU. But it does mean that everything is secure when you're a servant worshiper of Yahweh. There's really only one name in heaven and on earth given among men by which we must be saved. One name. And we are servant worshipers of Him. And the name that Yahweh shares, the name that Yahweh wears, walking on the face of the planet, Yeshua, Jesus Christ. By the way, there are three other minor prophets who, like Obadiah, only give a name and no other information. Habakkuk, Haggai, and Malachi. And we'll talk about them when we get to them, but all we get is a name. And some might say, well then why do you accept their prophecy is legitimate. You don't even know who they are. Why would you buy into what they have to say? And I'll give you two quick reasons besides the amazing substance of this book. Number one, the immediate historical completion of their prophecies. Every one of these guys spoke things that came true within a few years, if not a few hundred years, of their prophecy. We can date them. We can look back in history and say, Obadiah said this. Look at what happened. He was spot on correct. And so we have that, the immediate fulfillment. The book of Deuteronomy, I believe around chapter 18, the Lord said, that's how you know if a prophet is legit. If what he says comes true, he's, he's one of my prophets. If what he says does not come true, <coughs> Nostradamus, he's not one of my prophets. And there's no room for error. You either say what's true or you don't. And if you miss it, not a prophet. But all these guys nailed exactly what they said would come true and the things that have not yet come true. Well, that's the other proof here. Not only historical completion, but future consistency with all the other prophets. And one of the great blessings of studying through the Hebrew Scriptures is you start to realize over time, Jeremiah is saying exactly what Isaiah said. Ezekiel is just repeating the words of Jeremiah. Amos, Joel, Habakkuk, all of these guys, they all are saying the same thing. And the Lord is coming at it again and again and again and again. And it's completely interconnected and it's perfect. So I look at Obadiah and says, he's not saying anything that hasn't been said before or after. He is right in line with the Word and the will of God. Well, let's get into his prophecy and check it out. Verse 1. The vision of Obadiah... Thus says the Lord concerning Edom. Get this down, understand this, make sure you're aware of it. Edom is Esau. The Edomites are the offspring of Esau. And as a matter of fact, the Arabic people today have two primary forefathers, Ishmael and Esau. And all Arabs today can draw their genetic line back to either Ishmael or Esau. That's the history. And and they will tell you that. And they will accept that and claim that. And it is historically accurate. 
Now I need to give a disclaimer before I go any further, and I, I beg you all to hear me clearly on this. Being Arabic does not automatically make one hostile to God or to Israel. Now there is great hostility among Arab people toward the Israelis, toward the Jews, but not all Arabs. And we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are Arabic, and we have Arabs living alongside Jewish people in Israel, Israeli Arabs, who stand with their fellow Israelis. So it's not an immediate, and we don't want to get into the attitude of saying, an Arab, oh, he must be one of the bad guys. No, we're all bad guys until we're saved by Jesus. So keep that in mind, even as I talk, because we're going to talk a little bit about the Arab-Israeli conflict. Don't immediately go, Arab bad, Jew good. Not true. Some of the things that the Jewish people are doing in Israel right now are filthy sin. They're not better because they're Jew. I'm not better because I'm American. I'm not even better because I'm a Christian. I'm just saved and forgiven. So with that understanding, Genesis 36 verse 8 says, Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. You will also hear the phrase Mount Seir. Mount Seir refers to the region of Edom. So Edom is Esau. Esau is Edom. Genesis 36 verse 9 goes on to say, These are the records of the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. And my friends, the roots of the Arab-Israeli conflict including the irrational and bizarre hatred of Hamas toward Israel, can be traced directly back to Esau and his brother Jacob. And the relationship of these two, and we see the bitterness of today, born 3,800 years ago between two brothers. Turn back in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 28. Genesis 28. The prophet Ezekiel referred to this relationship as the everlasting enmity. Ezekiel 35, verse 5. God said there will be everlasting enmity between these brothers, between Esau and Jacob. And so we see it today. Watch this. Genesis chapter 25. Pick it up in verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. See how early conflict can begin? <laughs> and she said, it, it is so, why then and I, am I this way? And she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Boy, you know, for those of you ladies who you know, you've, you've given birth to just one person, two nations... That would freak me out. Not just talking about twins, we're talking about a lot of people. Anyway, that just catches me as strange. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came forth red. All over like a hairy garment. Cheryl asked me the other day, she said, well, Esau wasn't born hairy. And I said, oh, yes, he was. The Bible says so. He came out like a little Wookiee. <laughs> and, that, and that's why, that's why they named him Esau, which means hairy. 
His name was Harry, not H-A-R-R-H-I-I-H-A-I-R. This is one hairy little dude. And afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Yaakov, and Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob, Esau. Esau was the man's man, hairy. He was so hairy, his hair had hair. (laughs) He was an outdoorsman who, the Bible tells us, had a taste for wild game. He would have loved Cabela's. He would have been a shoe-in for Duck Dynasty. Okay, so get a picture of Esau. Jacob was a mama's boy. He was soft and smooth, a chef, and a homebody, probably good at needlepoint. Jacob was also a schemer, and his name, Yaakov, many of you Bible students know, it means heel catcher. See, they named him as they saw them. Harry and heel catcher. As Jacob's holding on for dear life, wanting to be first man out, and yet he could not be. But he had his eye, this schemer, on the double prize. He wanted the birthright, and he wanted the blessing, and he got them both. And that's not what the second born gets. But in Jacob's case, it was. Here's the stunner about the relationship of these two boys. The last mention of Esau in the Hebrew Scriptures is Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, to Jacob, to Israel. But you say, how have you loved us? And the Lord says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. The Hebrew Scriptures close with that word hanging in the air. I have loved Jacob, says God, who is love, yet I have hated Esau. Does that bother anybody? I'll tell you what should really bother us. Not that God hated Esau. I get that. He should hate all of us. But that God loved Jacob, who was no better than Esau, whose behavior in the Scriptures leaves quite a bit to be desired. This guy who lied and cheated and schemed, ripped off his brother, then took off. This guy who... who, I mean, the story of Jacob's life compared to the story of Esau's life, yeah, Esau's Duck Dynasty, but he's like the Duck Dynasty guy. He's a good guy. I mean, mostly. He forgives his brother. (laughs) Well, I'm sure a big slap on the shoulder. But Jacob, he's not a good guy. That bugs me, that God loved Jacob. Understand that the glory of Israel is not, nor ever was, Jacob. The glory of Israel has always been Yahweh. Not the man, but the God. We're going to get into the divine dichotomy of loving Jacob and hating Esau when we get to Malachi. But just understand this, know this for now, at the very end of the Hebrew Scriptures, God says, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Edom. But the hate originated with Esau himself. Look at verse 29, Genesis 25. 
when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. Red. Sounds a lot like Adam. Having to do with the earth. The redness of the dirt. Having to do with the flesh. Edom, red. But Jacob said, First, sell me your birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die. So, of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, First swear to me. So he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. might not seem like a big deal in our culture, but in Jewish culture, in early Hebrew culture, this is huge. This is your entire family line. This is your inheritance. This is your, your identity. And he sold it off for a bowl of stew. Verse 34, Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised, or literally hated, his birthright. Back to Obadiah. Esau, in the very beginning, before there was a people, when it was just the man, Esau despised and hated what God had given him. What do you mean? They struggled in the womb. Jacob could have come out first. Jacob could have been the firstborn child. And you know whose call it was? It was God's call. And God said, let Esau come out first. Let Esau be firstborn. Kind of like Saul and David. Saul, a man of the world, the people's choice. We'll give them what they want. And then David comes along, God's choice. But this is how Edom began. Esau despised first baby status. First man out. He had the birthright. He had the blessing. He had everything that came with it. And he said, you know what? It's not even worth a bowl of stew to me. What God has given me. That's the beginning of Edom and the Edomites. And they would go on to despise their cousins, the people of Jacob, just as Esau despised his birthright straight down the halls of history. Now in Obadiah, that's the background. That's where we begin. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. And the prophecy divides into three parts that you can note as we go through. The first two are reasons for God's judgment on Edom. Part one, the arrogance of Edom. The arrogance of Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and an envoy has been sent among the nations saying, Arise, let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. Note that. That verse is worth underlining just that sentence. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Now note this, there are three great cities in Edom. They were Taman, Basra, and the third was called Selah, or today you would know it as Petra. Petra, that rose-red rock city of the Edomites. Petra is a stronghold. Petra is a difficult city to even get into. It's got a mile-long passage as you head into it. Walls on either side 200 feet high. And it may yet be the stronghold to which Israel runs in the wilderness. And you can study that out. We've talked about it. Isaiah 16, Revelation 12. Go there, study it, think about these things. 
But it was one of the primary cities of Edom. And it's why he says, you who lives in the clef- live in the clefts of the rock and the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say, who will bring me down? Who can penetrate the rock-walled city of Petra? Who can get into Salem? Nobody can. We're a powerful people. And that was the attitude, the arrogance of Edom. Verse 4 says, Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And Edom conveys on a national scale what the Bible warns about on a very personal scale. Proverbs 16.18 Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. You might say, well, what's the real issue with pride? I mean, we take pride in our country, in our sports teams, pride in our children. We slap the bumper stickers on the back of the car. You know, my child is smarter than your idiot. (laughs) We take pride in all kinds of things. What's the problem? Pride was the primary sin of Lucifer. It's the reason the devil was cast out. Isaiah 14.14 He said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High God. And I think better than anybody else, J. Vernon McGee nails the issue of pride. He says, pride of heart is the attitude of a life that declares its ability to live without God. I don't need God. What do I need church for? I need this Christian stuff and all that Bible study. I got it. Pride. It is the root of pride. The Hebrew word for pride in Proverbs 16.18, pride that goes before destruction, is ga'an, and it's self-exaltation. I will exalt myself. I put myself in first place. I can handle it myself. By the way, that's not the word that God uses for Edom, not pride, but arrogance, which is another aspect of it. And this is really interesting to me. In verse 3 there, where it says, The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. The word is zedon, and it comes from the Hebrew root word zid. So what does that mean? You know what zid means? Ready for this? Stew. As in red lentil stew. As in the very issue of Esau's life. I will take stew over the Lord. I'll have a bowl of soup, trusting that I just need to fill up my strength and go back out and hunt, over following what the Lord has designed for my life. Zid, stew, zidon, arrogance. Genesis 25, verse 29 says, when Jacob had cooked stew, literally when he had zid nazid, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And so the arrogance of Edom stewed like the hunger of Esau. And that's been the root problem ever since. And the danger with arrogance in our lives, the danger with pride among us is it stews. It sits at a low simmer until it ultimately boils over. Until it goes too far. Until faith in myself, faith in my goodness, faith in my manhood, faith in my intellect, faith in my ability to handle crisis stews and boils over and I say, I really don't need the Lord. And I don't want to make a big issue out of this, but I'll tell you what, when you're sitting in ICU watching your wife on the throes of death, you realize there's nothing you can do but trust the Lord. There is nothing you can do But say, God, help 
It's His strength. And it's His power. And it's never ours. Verse 5, he goes on. He says, If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined. Would they not steal only until they had enough? If great gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? What he's saying is even thieves and gleaners leave something behind, but not so with Esau. You're getting nothing left. Oh, how Esau, verse 6, will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. There's no understanding in Esau. And that's exactly what he said back in verse 3. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. And understand, this is what pride and arrogance does. It deceives us. It blinds us from the true intentions of those around us. Until we think, ah, everybody's with me on this. All the nations are allied with me. No one's going to turn on me. And arrogance causes blindness. Psalm 41, verse 9, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Proverbs 11, verse 2 says, When pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble, note this, with the humble is wisdom. Humility opens the eyes of wisdom. Humility brings clarity. A humble heart gives you discernment because you don't assume that everybody thinks you're the best thing since bread. People don't assume that you've got it all together. People don't don't assume, you don't you don't think that everybody's on your side. You realize, hey, I could be totally on my own. I'm not this great person. And that kind of humility... Jesus had it. Jesus had it. Listen, John 13, 11. He knew the one who was betraying Him. For this reason, He said, not all of you are clean. Well, how did Jesus know who was going to betray Him? Jesus was humble. Jesus made no assumptions. And so Jesus knew the heart of man. Humility denies false assumptions, increases discernment, deepens wisdom, and Esau lost it. Edom did not have it because of their arrogance. Verse 8, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Taman, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Timon, or Teman, was world-renowned for its wise men. You think you're so smart, the Lord says. You are not. Your wisdom is false. Jeremiah the prophet, chapter 49, verse 7 says, Concerning Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, Is there no longer any wisdom in Timon? Has good counsel been lost to the prudent? Has their wisdom decayed? It had. And all because of the stewing of Esau. Part 2. The abuse of Jacob. The arrogance of Esau. Problem number 1. Part 2. The abuse of Jacob. Verse 10. Because of violence done to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. And you Bible students already know this. The word violence here in the Hebrew is Hamas. Hamas is violence. 
Well, what does it mean in Arabic? In Arabic, it means zeal, passion. And in Arabic, Hamas is an acronym for Islamic Armed Movement. A violent movement. The violent hatred of Hamas, my friends, is deeply rooted all the way back to Edom. It has been growing and stewing ever since. It's the only thing that makes sense out of the, out of the ridiculousness of what Hamas is trying to do. And if you've been following, as I have, the last few weeks of this most recent Israeli-Hamas crisis, you know this. From 2001 to the present day, and this is as recently as yesterday, over 18,000 rockets have been fired out of the Gaza Strip and into Israel, an average of three a day. How would it be if we living here in northern Washington were receiving three rockets from Canada every day? Little maple leaves on them. (laughs) And I don't mean to make light of that. Israeli children are growing up as bedwetters in their teens because they are so constantly nervous. Because the alarms go off and you have no idea where the rocket is going to fall in the sky. And Israel has allowed and put up with this with no retaliation for years. They've had three incursions into Gaza where they've gone back in to say, we've got to stop the rocket fire. And the rockets continue to fall. 2005, Ariel Sharon said, that's it, we're pulling out, you can have Gaza. There were Israeli towns in Gaza. There was Israeli agriculture in Gaza. There was Israeli commerce in Gaza that was doing good things for people in Gaza. And Israel said, I'll tell you what, we will pull out, you can have it all. We will leave behind all of our commerce, we will leave behind our agricultural expertise, it's yours, you can have it. And of course, at that time, what what the Palestinian Authority said is, we're going to make Gaza the Singapore of the Middle East. And instead it became a rabid hotbed of terror. In the past two weeks alone, 2,300 rockets have been fired from Hamas into Israel at an average of 164 rockets a day. Now, you've got world leaders saying, yeah, but what about the moral equivalence? The moral equivalence, you have a small number of Israelis dead, you have a lot of of people there in Gaza who are dead, and there's no moral equivalence. It, It blows my mind. What is the moral equivalence of one man dying on the cross for all of humanity? The moral equivalence isn't in terms of Numbers of people killed. It's in terms of the attitude of the heart. And the attitude of the heart of Hamas, and you've probably heard this, is to use innocent civilians as human shields. Have you heard this? Hamas uses their people for shields for their weapons. Israel uses their weapons as shields for their people. And this is what's truly going on. And what's blowing my mind in the current situation is we are watching, as I said before, anti-Semitism explode across the world. And anti-Israeli sentiment sentiment is is huge. And people saying, Israel is the aggressor. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said, all Hamas has to do to end this conflict is stop firing missiles. Just stop. Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. Violence to Jacob. There's another threat going on right now. The terror tunnels. 
And again, if you've been following this, you know the IDF has uncovered to date more than 45 terror tunnels. These are, these are well-built tunnels going down into the ground over about a mile or so into Israel and coming out where Hamas can pop up. And by the way, Hamas wasn't looking for war with Israel right now. You know what their plan was that has just been discovered? They were going to send 200 plus operatives through the tunnels into Israel on Rosh Hashanah this fall for massive terror attack. That was their goal. And it was only recently discovered, and it wouldn't have been discovered if not for the murder of the three Israeli teenagers. But it has come to light. They just seem to be blinded by hatred. But if you go back 3,800 years, the overt violence that we see in, in, in the terrorists like Hamas and Hezbollah and others, it didn't start off that way. Their hatred just began as indifference. Verse 11, On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. And by the way, there was a point in history where Arabians and Philistines and Edomites together in a coalition attacked Jerusalem and cast lots as to what part of the city they were going to try to take. That verse is the reason why some commentators try and say it's Babylon and Obadiah wrote this after the attack in Babylon because right here, on the day you stood aloof when strangers came in and carried off your wealth. The problem is Babylon didn't cast lots for Jerusalem. They just destroyed it. They just overran the whole thing. And furthermore, verse 12, he begins to give a series of do-nots and these do-nots are looking to the future. On this day you did this. Don't do this in the day coming. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. Do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives. And do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. And when Babylon conquered Jerusalem, that's exactly what the Edomites did. God said, do not, do not, do not, do not. Notice how their arrogance starts as indifference and stews over time. Verse 12, do not gloat. Do not rejoice. Do not boast. Verse 13, don't enter the gate. Don't gloat. Don't loot. And finally, verse 14, don't stand at the road and do not imprison their survivors and cut down their fugitives. You see how it goes from just aloofness, we don't care about those people, to cutting down their fugitives and killing them. The stewing of the Edomites. Eight times God says, do not. And they do anyway. How many times... I just ask myself the question. You can ask yourself. How many times does the Lord say to you, say to me, do not? Before we do not. How many times do we have to hear the Lord say... Don't do this, it will hurt you. Don't do this, it will divide you from me. Don't go there, it's not good for you. And we go, okay, whatever, and we go. And we do. How many do nots does the Lord have to speak before we hear Him and say, all right, I will not. I will not because I finally understand now, Father. How about I will not because you said don't. I will not because I will obey you. I will not, because whether or not I get it, you are wiser than I am, Father. 
and I will do as you ask. See, the Lord understands something. That it takes time for sin to thicken. Just like stew. It takes time for sin to run its course. And what starts as a little thing gets deeper and thicker and heavier until ultimately it boils over. And that's why the psalmist wrote in Psalm 1, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the seat of or the path of sinners, nor sit down in the seat of scoffers. Starting as walking, standing among, and then sitting with. The progress of sin. Wisely, the psalmist says, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night, because you see, the Word of God stops the stewing of sin. What is it for those who could trace their lineage back to Edom? For those Arabs today who are lovers of Jesus Christ and even supporters of Israel, and there are some, what is it that made the difference for them? I will tell you what it is. The Word of God. Because the Word of God stops the stewing. And the Word of God will stop the stewing of sin in your life. If you've got some sin problem you're battling big time, first thing you need to do after praying is get into the Word and stay in the Word. And I guarantee you, it will stop the stewing. Now, the judgment expands beyond Edom. Edom, a type of the flesh, is also a picture of the nations. Verse 15, now looking forward for the day of the Lord, draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. This is the Bible's first mention of the day of the Lord. First time we hear about it in Scripture. We talked about this day at length when we studied Joel because Joel comes along later and completely develops the concept of the day of the Lord, the tribulation, beginning with the tribulation, and running, as we talked about, all the way to the end of the millennial kingdom. A great day where God finally says, that's it, I'm stepping in, and I'm going to show you who I am, and I will be in charge. The Bible clearly emphasizes here and in other places the treatment of the people of Israel as a significant factor in the blessings and the cursings of the day of the Lord. Now get this. We've talked about it a lot here at the bridge, but if you haven't heard this yet, listen. How you view Israel, your attitude toward Israel, and our treatment of Israel directly affects whether we're blessed or cursed in our lives as a church fellowship, as a nation. And we see this over and over. Jesus said when the Son of Man comes, He's going to separate the nations. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Not that you guys are goats, but just right and left. That's what I'm doing. Matthew 25, verse 40, Truly I say to you, Jesus speaking, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them you did it to me, Well, he's just talking about the generic, you know, impoverished, homeless people of the world. No, he's talking about Israel. What you do to my brother's Israel, you've done to me. Verse 16. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. Note this, they will drink and swallow. The word swallow is literally stagger. They will drink and stagger and become as if they never existed, tipping the goblet of Israel, cheering her distress, siding with her enemies, will result in national annihilation. As if the nation never existed. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 2. God said very clearly, Behold, I am going to make Israel 
a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And we've been watching it continue to cause drunken stupors of the nations who would come against Jerusalem. We don't want to drink that cup. This is huge. This is a major factor of national judgment. And by the way, it is also one that the church had better bear in mind. Because it will affect where the church ends up as Jesus calls us home. God isn't through with the Jew. Part 3, third and final part, the assembly of Israel, verse 17. But on Mount Zion there will be those who escape, and it will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Joel completes this thought. Joel 2.32 It will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape. And as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. And get this, verses 17-21 through at the conclusion of this prophecy clearly are set in the coming kingdom. This is all kingdom focused. This is all beginning with the day of the Lord and running into the kingdom of the Lord. Verse 18, Then the house of Jacob will be a fire. Then the house of Joseph will be a flame. And that doesn't mean they're going to catch fire and burn to death. It means they're going to be judging. It means they will give strength, be given strength and power for judgment. They will be a flame, a fire of judgment. Note the context. But the house of Esau will be stubble. And they will set them on fire. That is, Israel will set Esau on fire and consume them so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken. And then those of the Negev, which was originally Edomite territory, those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau, that's Jordan today. And those of the Shephelah, the Philistine plain, guess what? That's Gaza. Also, they will possess the territory of Ephraim in the north, the territory of Samaria to the east, and Benjamin will possess Gilead, which is east of the Jordan River, so again, northern Jordan today. And the exiles of this host, of the sons of Israel, who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, that's up as far as Lebanon to the north, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad, Sepharad, does that sound familiar? Like the Sephardic Jews are Jews who come out of Spain. So the Sephirot would be Jews coming from that direction. They will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers, note this plural, the deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. The deliverers? I I, I would understand if he said the deliverer will ascend Mount Zion, I'd say Jesus, the deliverer. Mashiach, Messiah, of course he's going to do that. And other prophets say that. The deliverer will deliver His people. But this is plural. Who are these deliverers? If you're reading a King James Bible, it might freak you out even a little bit more. It says, Saviors. Saviors will ascend Mount... Saviors, plural? Okay, let me just take you through my thought process when I read this. There's only one Savior. Lord, you told us that. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 21, I alone am He. There is no Savior but Me. And yet now the Lord is telling us in His Word, Saviors will ascend Mount Zion. The Hebrew word for Savior here, Yasha, which is the root word for Yeshua. Savior. Jesus saves. God saves. Yasha. Saviors. So who are these deliverers? 
I had to chew on this one. You don't have to chew as long. I'll tell you quickly. Matthew Henry said, The mountain of Zion shall be saved. On it, saviors shall come, preachers of the gospel, who are called saviors because their business is to save themselves and those who hear them. And in this they are workers together with Christ, but to little purpose if He by His grace did not work together with them. The same that come as saviors on Mount Zion shall judge the mountains of Esau. For the, listen, for the word of their gospel, the gospel in their mouth, the word of the gospel that saves believers, judges unbelievers. And the gospel does that. You realize that's the dichotomy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What saves those who will accept it is what condemns those who reject it. The saving grace of Jesus. The gospel message that He came, He died, He rose from the dead, and He offers salvation to anyone who will call upon His name. That's the gospel, and that same gospel will condemn those who say, I don't want it. I'll have none of it. Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So are these deliverers the church? No. (laughs) No, they're not. I don't believe so. I think a type of the church, a picture of what the church ultimately would become, those who bring the gospel, those who seek the deliverance of this world by the gospel of God's grace, absolutely, it's it's a picture. We're called as deliverers of the message of salvation. But these deliverers are very specific. Look back at verse 18. The house of Jacob will be a fire. The house of Joseph will be a flame. The house of Esau will be as stubble. We're talking about Israel here. But Israel needs a deliverer. So who are the deliverers? Well, these deliverers, we're told here in verse 21, will ascend Mount Zion. Who does that? It's a number. 144,000. Revelation 14, verse 10 tells us the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion and with Him 144,000 having His name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. These are the signed, sealed deliverers. (laughs) Those who at the midpoint of the tribulation are sealed. Revelation chapter 7. Well, who are they? Revelation 7 is so specific we don't even have to guess. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Jacob. These are 144,000 Jewish gospel carriers, Jewish missionaries. The 144,000 Jews of Revelation 7 and 14 are, I believe, the deliverers who will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau. They are global missionaries whose gospel is salvation to the second man and condemnation to the first. And this is what I want you to get this morning. Obadiah is a word of judgment to the first man, Edom. It is a word of salvation to the second man, Joseph. Edom, Esau being born first. Jacob coming out, being born second. I said Joseph, I meant Jacob. But it's more. The book of Obadiah, this entire prophecy, is a meta-narrative in the Bible. An overarching picture of something that God declares again and again and again in the Scriptures. Think about this. What do these brothers have in common? Cain and Abel. Ishmael and Isaac. Esau and Jacob. In each case, 
the older served the younger. In each case, the second man is saved. God takes interest in the second man. And Jesus even said in Mark 10.31, Many who are first will be last, and the last first. The second man. The Abel's, the Isaac's, the Jacob's, is absolutely prominent as an overriding story in Scripture. Why? Well, first of all, because Jesus is the second man. And it speaks of Him. I'm just going to read this to you. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Make a note of it and go back and read this. But listen right now. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. Paul says it is written, The first man, Adam, Adam, sounds a lot like Edom, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. And the second man is from heaven. Adam was the man of earth. The man made of the dirt of the ground. Edom, hairy, red, was the same earthy kind of a guy. That picture of the first man. Jesus is the man from heaven. The picture of the spiritual man. The last Adam. The second man. And throughout Scripture, we see this happen again and again. God sets aside the first for the second. The first for the second. Because only in the second man can the first man be saved. Only in the second man, Jesus, can the first man find his salvation. 1 Corinthians 15.48 goes on and says, As is the earthly, so are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so are those who are heavenly, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly, because not only is Jesus the second man, but in Jesus, I am the second man. And that's what God wants to get us to. He wants to draw us away from first man mentality, first child out, firstborn, man of the world. He wants to get us out of that and pull us into the identity of the second man. And you know how to become the second man. You get born again. John 3, Jesus describes it beautifully. Born of the Spirit, the spiritual man. When I was born again, the first man died. The first man was done away with. The first man has no say in me anymore. The second man, the Abel, the Isaac, the Jacob, the saved. And by the way, in all three cases, not because they were great guys. But because chosen by God, He's been giving us this story over and over, I will save the second man. I will save the second man. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul says, Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, the first man, the Edom, the Esau. We have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And check this out. What did the Scriptures say about Jacob and Esau? Genesis 25.28, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. This boy's like me. But we're told that Rebekah loved Jacob, period. 
You know that? The first man, the man of the flesh, is always loved conditionally. But the second man is always loved unconditionally in the love of God through Jesus Christ. To become the second man is to become loved in spite of yourself. And that we are in Jesus. And there's so much more I could say about that. But we are in Christ the second man. Last thing to know. Even the second man has to possess what he's been given. Note that about Israel. It's one of my favorite verses there in Obadiah. It says the house of Jacob, verse 17, will possess their possessions. Now, on the surface, you might say, well, duh. (laughs) Of course they're going to... Don't you possess your possessions? I possess a house. My possession. Well, actually, the bank possesses most of it, but I possess some. (laughs) You know, I've got my cars. I've got my clothes. Those are my possessions. I, I, I possess them. Do we? Do we? Do you? Have you taken possession of that which you already possess? Israel has not. And here's the amazing thing. They will possess their possessions. From Gaza to Lebanon to Jordan, from the river of Egypt to the great river, all of this is Israel's possession right now. But they don't possess it. The Bible says they will. And I think it's interesting that in our lives... Possession is not nine-tenths of the law, gang. Possession is the whole point. And God has invited you, invited me right now to possess what you already possess. That sadly, so many of us Christians don't realize we possess. We think if we work for it to a certain point, maybe ultimately down the line somewhere, we'll get it. And God says, you already have it. As Don, my friend, is, is fond of saying, you can't get more of His Holy Spirit. He's already given His entire spirit. There's no more spirit to be given. It's all there. He's all there. The issue is my possession. Will I take hold of this? How does a person come to possess the inheritance of the firstborn? By becoming the secondborn. The second man. You've got to be born again. And if you've been born again, then the question remains, have you possessed your possessions in Christ Jesus? Paul put it this way, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. He's laid hold of me. He's already got me. And now Paul says, I press on to get Him because He's already got me. Even in my pressing on, I already possess everything everything that I need. I possess eternity. I possess salvation. I possess the unconditional love of God. I possess it all in Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Paul wrote, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Everything is there. The possessions are there. Will we possess them? By faith in Jesus Christ, have you taken hold of His promises by faith? And what God has reminded me this month is His promises are far bigger than this life. His promises are forever. Let's take hold of those. We have a future ahead of us. I don't know how long here on earth. But we have a future ahead of us that spans eternity. And God has invited us to be those who hold on and take hold and trust Him. And Father, we do. And we come to You this morning. And I I pray 
Lord, for this grace to be poured out on all of our lives, all of our hearts. There are things in each of our lives we have not yet taken possession of spiritually. There are things that we have not owned. Some have not owned grace. Have not fully taken possession of grace. Still doubting the salvation that you have so freely given. Some haven't even taken possession of Jesus Christ yet. Through faith and becoming born again. The second man, the second woman. Father, among us, I know there are, in my life, things I have yet to possess. Truths. Spiritual blessings. Grace. Father, lead us to possess our possessions. Not selfishly, not arrogantly, but because of the unconditional love and grace of our Lord Jesus. And by Your grace, we will. As Israel will possess their possessions, so we will. And if you've never become the second man, if you've never given your life to Jesus, I invite you to do it right now, in your seat this morning, to pray, open up your heart to Him, and just say, Lord, forgive me for my sin. I want to be born again. I want to be born into a new life. And so, I speak the only name I know that can do this, the name of Jesus. And I call out to You, Lord Jesus, to save me by Your blood poured out at the cross by Your resurrection from the tomb. Save my life for eternity, Lord. Fill me with Your Spirit. Give me new birth. And let me walk with You forever. In Jesus' name, Amen.